0: She starts Monday. She's a quick learner um, and she's every lender's dream analyst.
1: That's Carl Raideen, the CEO and co founder of Precision Lender, one of our newest portfolio companies. And the she he's referring to is Andy. But this she isn't a person, she's a fintech bot. And she's designed to help commercial relationship managers and commercial bankers win better deals and build stronger relationships with their customers. Today, I'll be talking both to Carl and a bit later to George Neal, Precision Lender's Chief Analytics Officer, about the growing application of artificial intelligence in the fintech industry. I'm John Pryle, and welcome to the Impact Podcast. If you're not familiar with Precision Lender, they work with around 200 banks ranging from small operations to some of the largest financial institutions in the world. And as I mentioned, Precision Lender works primarily with commercial relationship managers and commercial bankers, helping them to understand the deals that they have in front of them, their relationships with customers, and how they can serve their customers more efficiently and effectively. So Carl, before you got into AI, you had an offering, a key anchor of Precision Lender, and it was called Profitability Wizard. Can you tell our listeners what that did and why it was so valuable to your relationship managers?
0: Well, it's funny. When I started working with banks a long time ago, when we started working on pricing and profitability, I'm a type of guy that I like to develop a set of principles and then use the principles to guide what we do and kind of re- revisit those principles. But there's a million decisions you have to make. Back then, our promise, or principle I found was we do everything that computers do well so that humans can do everything that humans do well. And our goal was really to help them be better. Um, And when you start with that idea of helping them be better, um, it leads you to a certain place. And that led us to another principle, which is try to deliver the smallest bit of information at exactly the right time where it can have the most impact on the outcome of those critical conversations the banker's having with their customer. So that's what we did. And eventually we started that. and, And inside the application, we'd constantly show the lender ways to make the deal work. We called that profitability wizard, it was a set of numerical solutions. the lending problem they were looking at in front of them right there if you want to get kind of intricate about it no one else called it the profitability wizard and it was we're bad at naming things so um that was kind of a name that really didn't resonate with people um they would call it the bankers would call it the the magic dots because we'd put little green dots around the screen to highlight ways they can make the deal work they would call it the magic dots or something like that and but no one ever called it what we called it um proven how bad we were at marketing, I think. And so that's what started it. And, and that was probably one of the most loved features by lenders because it really allowed them to see the relative importance of every deal term to the bank so they could focus on what was important to their customer and find ways to structure a deal that would work for the customer and for the bank in a positive way. And that's really the,
1: the secret, the job to be done uh, at the end of the day that we were trying to solve. So let's take a step back for a minute. Let's talk about commercial lending, how it's done, and what makes Precision Lenders Profitability Wizard, which, let me clarify, has since evolved to become that bot Andy that we mentioned earlier, and why it's so valuable to relationship managers overseeing commercial loans. Uh,
0: how this hand- is handled, I don't know if you know this, but within most banks, what happens is there's a ex- small banks there's a wet finger in the wind. They just kind of make up the pricing, or by gut feel, I would say. Maybe not purely making it up, but a a gut feel. At the larger banks, they typically have a large Excel spreadsheet or a large Excel spreadsheet that had been kind of webified where it was, the lender would fill out a page, hit next, fill out a page, hit next, fill out another page, hit next. And then at the end, it would say, that doesn't work. You know? And then they'd have to go back, back, back. And lenders didn't use it in the moment to find a way to win a better deal. They didn't use it to shape the deal when it was at its most malleable. It was a piece of paperwork they'd fill out after the deal had already been cooked. And- it was frustrating it didn't create value and so our initial thing with the profitability wizard is we should do everything that computers can do well well so that humans can do what they need to do well 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 take all that stuff and take the answers out of the back of the book and bring them forward we're a computer we can we have a computer we can solve for what all the right answers are here's what you have to do on rate here's what you have to do on fee here's what you have to do on uh structure in terms of maturity or amortization or other things and those were all just straight solves using the deal, the data that was in front of us for that particular transaction. And, and it turned out to be pretty amazing. And it's really a simple concept, just lead with the answer, right? <laughs> Give them what they, what they need to do to do their job well um, up front. And where that evolved is they asked us, well, can you, can, can you tell us more things there, right? And then we started to get more and more intelligent uh, in what we were offering. And we started looking at, the relationship as a whole that we have with the customer and other things. And, um, and, and we started adding more and more. And again, because we're really stupid at naming things, we called these things custom profitability wizard. <laughs> right. And uh, the folks who knew us kind of got that and spoke our language and said, you know, Oh, we really love that. So we'd add these custom uh, profitability wizard things in there. Some of them were based on machine learning across all the data we see. Some of them, uh, were just simple heuristics, um, uh, if this, then that, which are often quite valuable as well.
1: And so how did this profitability wizard eventually become Andy, and how did that change things?
0: About a year ago, almost exactly, um, we decided that we should actually personify it as Andy, and then start making, thinking about building skills for Andy. And, and really, I'll tell you, that personification has been tremendous for us in terms of the understanding, uh, both internally and externally, of what we're doing
1: what does it mean in terms of biases and honesty and and how you represent your company and your brand through this ai
0: so there's there's multiple legs of that um one of them is the personification is incredibly valuable um at least surprisingly so for us not just in the marketing and the sales and customers being able to understand um what they're getting used to we we would go in and we would sell software with some wonderful features right now what i go in and I show them the same software, but it has Andy. And, and I say, every one of your lenders is going to get their own personal analyst that works 24-7. And she's getting smarter every single day because she sees every deal at the bank. She constantly sees your entire portfolio. And she's helping them make better uh, decisions. I had people now walk out of a product demo and, and look at me and go, God, I want an Andy. I need <laughs> an Andy. And, and, and before they didn't have the mental handle you know, they, they they couldn't take the collection of features, right? Um, the technical things we would do, you know, Newton's method solve and what they appreciate, they got it and they liked it, but they didn't have the handles to put on it, and, and it also captures their imagination. The other thing that surprised me is internally, um, when we talk about building things, it came from we had a the whole Andy name is interesting. It came from we had a client. Uh, his name was it was a guy. His name was Andy A and D Y. And we were constantly finding ourselves—we were building out the profitability wizard to give suggestions to the lenders. Asking ourselves, he's the director of pricing and profitability at one of our banks, and he's fantastic. And we would ask ourselves, what would Andy do? What would Andy tell him to do? And we said, shucks, why don't we just give every lender? I wish we give—we were joking. I wish we could give every lender their own Andy, right? And we said, well, why don't we just do that? Why don't we like design, Think about how we build our product—is we're going to give every lender their own Andy, right? As best we can. And uh, that was huge, um, and and I think the personification has been surprisingly uh, great in the marketing effort and sales effort. But even more surprisingly, so in giving us a framework to think about what we build um, and how we build it, as we're giving every lender an Andy.
1: That's great, and I think the key to AI really is you know modeling off a human expert, building your building your artificial expert. Um, so you've got this tool. You, uh, you had this non AI tool. You added ML. And you evolved to an AI offering. You personified it as Andy. But what comes next? How did you decide about skills? Uh, how did Andy evolve? How does Andy evolve? One of my favorite qu- quotes
0: is uh, Pablo Picasso: uh, "Good artist copy, great artist steal." <laughs> um, and uh, so the the idea is to say, look, we're we're not the first person in the world to ever do this, right? Let's find who's who's doing this and doing really well at it. So. Um, We looked at Cortana and the the general purpose um, uh, AI personification out there, Cortana, Siri, um, Viv, uh, Alexa. And the thing we really liked that we kind of used as the model for, for Andy was Alexa. And we actually bought up Echo and put it here, and we had developers just for fun build some skills for it. And this extensibility, the ability to add skills, um, in a really easy fashion, uh, really fit with where we're trying to go. Our mission is to build a platform for building the brain of the bank. And, and and we think pricing is really kind of the important part of the brain of the bank. And so how do we not be the bottleneck in creating valuable intelligence and infusing valuable intelligence into the customer acquisition process at the bank? So uh, we build a, a platform for us to build skills initially, but then we Uh, later this year, we'll make that platform available to our customers to build skills and even third parties to build skills where they can mix in their data into the context. And again, put the smallest bit of information on the eyeballs of the relationship manager uh, so that the human can do what the human does best, work with that other human being, the customer, to solve their problem.
1: And are you comfortable putting a skill out early? Does it have to be perfect? What's the timing of of kind of your learning of the value when an end user is seeing and using these skills for the first time?
0: So we, we iterate and we, we, one of my other favorite quotes is I don't let the perfect be the enemy of the better. And a lot of times, uh, folks will get obsessed with perfect, but sometimes I'll find, uh, reminding folks of kind of where we, what do you do today? Right. And we make it up. Okay. Well, let's, we can do better than that and let's get better than that. And once we get better than that, once we, we call it getting off zero, once we get off zero and we start improving, we've got something we can improve. Right. And there's a guy, uh, or David Brailsford, I think is his name, uh, who's the guy who took over British cycling, and he has this philosophy of 1% improvements, right? And if you get off zero and then you make it 1% better every single day, uh, it compounds, right? So getting off zero is most important, and then start building that momentum where you kind of make it 1% better each day and, and at a high, high velocity and a high throughput. So we start with basic skills, and we start with how can we make it better, where are the places where something is valuable, a piece of information that's valuable. So for example, one of the first ones we did was predicting the utilization of lines of credit. The profitability of a line of credit is very sensitive to its utilization, right? So if I loan you, if I give you a million dollar line of credit and you don't ever draw it, it, I never generate any revenue. If you draw half of it, I generate, you know, yield on 500,000s of drawn balance. If it's the full thing, I get a yield on a million. So my revenue is highly dependent on the utilization. So we did in the the early days of the software. Well, that matters. So we'd ask the relationship manager put in the utilization. What do you think it's going to be? And they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so then we asked the admin. Well, put in a default uh, for what you think the utilization will be. And and they they might know better, but they still didn't know. And so what we said is that's really valuable. It's something that humans don't know. Gosh, we have the data to be able to predict this better than anybody because We see the portfolio every single week. We track the balance changes. We track the utilization. And we can say, uh, what are the factors that would allow us to predict the utilization a priori? And could we do it better than the wet finger in the wind they're using now? So find something really valuable that they're kind of making up now and winging it, and let's get better than that. And then once we get better than that, then we start getting some miles on the odometer, and we can make it 1% better, 1% better every day and continue to improve that skill and dial it in. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what we did.
1: That's fantastic. So you talk about computers doing what computers can do, the workers doing what workers can do. And in this case, it really sounds like you're augmenting a workforce as opposed to automating it. What's your take on those two lenses?
0: So, and I will say I do have my moments where I worry if I'm wrong about this, but I don't think I am, I think I'm right. Um, I'm a believer AI can amplify humanity. The idea is that as prediction, AI and machine learning and all things are going on makes prediction cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Whenever a particular piece of value chain becomes very cheap, its complements become very valuable. So right now, humans aren't very good at prediction. Computers are amazing at prediction. Prediction becomes very cheap with AI um, and and large amounts of data. That doesn't make the human less valuable. It makes the, the part that is human, that judgment, that action that needs to be taken, the connecting to the empathizing with the person on the other end, it makes it even more valuable, and so we're. The Accenture has a report out, the 2017 Tech Outlook, that talks a lot about this. And the CTO of Accenture, I think, put it really well. It's not about building superhumans; it's about making humans super. And uh, I really like that, and I agree with it.
1: So there, there are billions of dollars of money being poured into AI research with all the big guys: Pickem, Facebook, Apple, Google, et cetera. Yet here we are, you're a small company, you've made a huge investment in AI, it's really done uh, some amazing things for your company already. How should other CEOs be thinking about AI in terms of their own business and then maybe these other ones which may or may not be considered as threats? Um,
0: So we, we, I'll come back to my Pablo Picasso quote. The the big guys are building large, horizontal, Uh, I wouldn't compete with them on that front, but they're making it all available to you at at ridiculously uh, economical prices to use in particularly narrow verticals um, like ours. And I think in AI, the thing that is most powerful is context is king. I think if you know back in the early days of the internet, people said content is king, right? I think in AI, context is king. If you have a a narrowly defined context that you understand quite well Um, you can actually build some amazing things using some of the same tools that others that the big guys have built for general purpose stuff and create enormous value and I think that's what we do is uh, we we don't try to invent natural language we use Lewis from Microsoft we don't try to you know invent a bot framework we we use bot frameworks that have already been developed for other things and we copy make it our own in our context.
1: With that great overview from Carl about how Precision Lender is using AI as the foundation, let's now drill down a level deeper with George Neal, Precision Lender's Chief Analytics Officer. George, I'd like to start off by asking how your company approaches data rights.
2: So I will sing someone else's praises in this, and that our founders understood when they were founding the company that data sets, uniqueness of data sets, and the ability to make them applicable and valuable was going to be the economy of scale going forward. And I think that was a tremendous insight to make at that time. In our contracts, it gives us the ability to derive collective intelligence. Right? So while I'm not going to be able to, nor would I want to say, hey, the bank across the street from you who happens to be our client is using this deal. Now that's, that's, that's just a bad, bad thing to do. What I can say is collectively across all banks, when we see things that look like this deal, this is the way that turned
1: out. Fabulous. And that's the heart of what we've been calling applied analytics since we started and, and applied analytics has really evolved to this application or applied artificial intelligence now. So I think that's terrific. Um, how is uh, Andy going to evolve in terms of how it will interact? What, you know, One of the other thesis areas we often talk about is conversational business. So what are your thoughts about how these RMs are going to be uh, working with Andy? So
2: we see it, um, and you talk about conversational business. Andy is actually built around a conversational platform. So a lot of our management of Andy is done through Slack, through, a, through chat. So we can actually tell Andy things on the backside to make her smarter as we watch the conversations come through. But how I think, to get to your original question, how I think this is going to play through with um, how relationship managers interact with Andy, to give you a scenario that I do not think is that far-fetched, you're on a golf course, you're a relationship manager, the client is there with you you send Andy an, a text message saying, Andy, I'm standing in here with John. Can you give me some options on a $15 million CRE under these following basic guidance? And she'll be able to pop back viable options for you. That's tremendous. So that's, that's not a far-fetched state.
1: No, it's great. And you're right, it is here now. And, and what we're doing is taking these interfaces that were very common in the consumer side and moving into the business side. So we'll stick with your analogy. Sometimes of are going from consumer to, to commercial. So what about training then? Uh, obviously, we have lots of data. Uh, you know what you want to deliver in terms of the insights you get there, but you mentioned that you're monitoring. So w- what's the story with, with humans in the loop? And, and uh, when Andy asks for help or says, I don't know, uh, how, does, how does that all play out? so one of our basic tenets is to
2: use the best information and best intelligence that we have not the not the most award-winning data science that we have so in a lot of cases what that means is that an individual will know far better than the best model you can build and the way it manifests here every interaction with andy i should say every chat interaction with andy um, although it's similarly true with a lot of the machine level interactions comes through a chat window that people are monitoring on our side so that when we see Andy say, I don't know, we can, we can immediately say, but she should have known. And this is what she should have known. And we can either fix that right there, or we can put that in a work queue of things to be worked on. The other thing that, that happens is we use human training a great deal. So we do a lot of supervised learning here because the space is very specialized. There's a lot of subject matter experts in the space. There's a lot of very specialized knowledge that you can capture if you have a human in the loop. Just the ability to say, you know, I know it looks like you were talking about a credit card, but you're really not. That's something that a human would likely pick up far
1: faster than an initially trained AI. I'll just give a quick story because I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of the Freakonomics podcasts. Uh, And they were talking about sequential bias, not AI bias or machine learning bias, but you know, if you and I see a coin flipped five times in a row and it's all heads, we still know it's 50% that the next one's going to be heads again, but we think it's going to be tails. And they did a study and I think it was in India, they were watching loan officers. And when a loan officer had rejected three loans in a row the odds of that fourth loan being approved, whether the data was good or not, quite high. It was, just, it was a statistical anomaly that there was bias built in on the human side already. So you've already got those protections and banks have those protections built in and obviously you manage or the banks are managing the portfolios the right way. But I'd like to understand your thoughts on that and more importantly, how you're focusing on teaching Andy to ensure there's no bias in the data coming in and in the recommendations coming out.
2: So, let me start by saying that there was a gentleman who won a Nobel Prize, I believe it was, or it may have been a fields medal or something similar to that um, and I need to look him up, but his name was Heckman, and his award winning piece of work was the Heckman Regression, which gets rid of sample or which addresses sample selection bias that frankly almost all banks face so to get really, really geeky, I would say that. Almost every bank out there, when they start doing analytics of their portfolio and behavior of their portfolio, pretty much all of them already have sample selection bias in them. One of the things that we have is a broader distribution of observations because we have access to so many banks' data that we suffer a little less from that. So you can say, and if you look at what the Heckman problem presents for banks, you only know what happens or what the results are for loans that you approved. And so your sample is inherently biased towards those things which you approved in the past. You have no idea what would have happened to those things that you didn't approve. So what we have at our disposal is a much broader sample and a much more diverse sample than what most banks have. So inherently, I would say our data set is better predisposed to having less bias than any single banks. Now, how do we make sure we don't inject more bias? Well, of course, there's standard data science techniques you can use to make sure that you're providing uplift. We do, we do pretty rigorous um, evaluations against holdout data sets and against you know, testing data sets. All of that goes into sort of the less exciting to talk about, but sometimes more fun pieces of data science. But the biggest way that we do that is we test and we watch. So every prediction that we make, we record. Every prediction that we would have made, even if we weren't asked for it, we record. So Andy has this great thing about how she's built right now. And I'll go back to that line of credit skill. She doesn't say anything if she doesn't have an opinion. And when I say have an opinion, I think it's substantially different than what you have on the screen right now. That's an opinion. Mm -hmm. If she thinks you're probably really close to right or you're probably plus or minus 10%, she won't say anything. It doesn't mean we don't record what she thought the answer was. We still record what she thought the answer was. We still monitor that. We still track it over time. Was she right? Was she wrong?
1: Well, that's the perfect flavor for training. You do it behind the scenes just like Tesla with its self-driving mode, always being on, tracking what it would do versus what humans would do. And they're doing it to really build a data set and defend themselves. But in your case, it's a really critical training element. It, it really is. And there's, there's some really fun stuff that you get out
2: of that. By choosing when not to speak, you can build more credibility for your AI. Because if the AI wants to talk about every little change that you made on the screen, it starts getting annoying. So that's one thing. Two, we're cognizant of the confidence levels to which we make predictions and the confidence intervals of those predictions. So if she's not confident enough to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, John, you might want to consider that that value might be a little bit off, then she doesn't do it. That doesn't mean she doesn't have an opinion. It just means she chose not to share it because she wasn't sure enough.
1: So let's go a bit deeper and talk about your tech stack. When I was talking with Carl, he mentioned how much you take advantage of the technology of some of the bigger players. So what do you use? Precision Lender's
2: entire stack is built in, in Microsoft Azure. That is held to, I would say, not with any type of religious fervor, but rather with the cognizant knowledge that everything that you do to expand the production footprint of the application expands multifold the control requirements the the management footprint etc so if you go outside of of azure for production anything then all of a sudden you've ex- you've included the trust footprint for that all the security we've got to expand the audit requirements we've got to expand you know all of these things and dealing with financial service firms as customers those requirements are very very strict it is as core as getting the math right so uh, we we you can hear around here the phrase, the things that will will potentially put us out of business is if we get the math wrong or we break trust. And perhaps getting the math wrong is a manifestation of that, but our whole business is built around making sure that our control environments are properly maintained and managed for financial service firms. So we do run on Azure. Our data science stack is predominantly SQL based, We use some Azure ML Studio for some of the automated testing. We do have work that's done in Python and R. What else could I tell you? Our AI is a combination of C-sharp code, skills that are built in Azure ML, code that's written in Python, um, all of that running against Microsoft Lewis and the Microsoft Bot Framework for Natural Language Understanding. So that's the core technology behind her.
1: And you have challenges in terms of um, getting the skills you need on board, because obviously there's lots of uh, piece parts here, and there's the big guys gunning after AI skills, and there's lots of how are you doing in terms of getting both data science skills and the technology skills to to leverage the data in the, in this new paradigm.
2: We have done very very well. I will I will share that I'm thrilled to work with the team that we have. I think that they're amazing. A lot of how we've approached that, though, is perhaps slightly different than traditional firms have looked at it. Uh, Give an example one of our data scientists, if you look at his resume, you would have seen very little professional data science experience. However, though he wasn't a professional data scientist in his prior job, he went out and joined Kaggle competition teams and made sure that he could establish himself himself as being a professional data scientist through another route. So we look for that kind of drive, for that kind of, I'm gonna go and figure it out and do it, and okay, so I can't get this job where I am right now, that doesn't mean that I can't do this and can't prove to you that I'm capable. Capability, approach, attitude are all infinitely valuable and necessary and we
1: require all of them. That was George Neal, Precision Lenders Chief Analytics Officer, adding on to my earlier discussion with Carl Raideen, the company's CEO. It wasn't that many years ago when we, George and partners, were talking with CEOs about applied analytics. It was new and it was exciting and it showed great value. And now it's just table stakes for almost every company. Here we are talking about Applied Artificial Intelligence. It's a bit different. The term can be overused and it surely can be misunderstood. Look, We know AI is getting focused at the big companies for sure, and it's showing up at the consumer level. But like Precision Lender, like we heard from Carl, every company needs to focus and think about what they are good at, how they manage or improve a business process, and then think about how AI can make it even better with a bot or even fully automated someday. Thanks for listening for the Impact Podcast. I'm John Pryo.